Lundit Lopate at large. I'm Lundit Lopate. In his new book, You Might Go to Prison Even Though You're Innocent, Justin Brooks, the co-founder and director of the California Innocence Project, makes a case that any of us may find ourselves caught in the system, and he presents real-life accounts of wrongful convictions and innocence claims he's had to fight. In his book, which is published by the University of California Press, he describes what he's learned from his more than three decades as a criminal defense attorney and innocence organization director. And he joins us now. Welcome to our show. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you. I always thought the rule was innocent until proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And yet your California Innocence Project's website points out that its clients have collectively spent more than 570 years wrongfully incarcerated? Is that mostly in California? Yeah, the, yeah, those are just my clients um, in California. When you look collectively around the nation, mm-hmm. and we're more like 3,000 years uh, in prison in terms of people who have been wrongfully convicted. Actually, it's, I think it's 25,000. There's been more than 3,000 documented cases of wrongful conviction. I've even uh, had a few instances of uh, talking to people who gotten out of prison after a while over the years so uh, i know that it happens everywhere Uh, the california innocence project is a branch of the larger innocence project which is a nonprofit organization that was founded in 1992 and provides pro bono legal services to exonerate individuals who maintain their innocence um what do they do other than fight in court do they go to legislatures to um also uh, change the laws yeah and actually each innocence organization is an independent um organization so there is a project in new york called the innocence project which was the first innocence project but then we've had projects open up all over the world in fact i'm calling from mexico today where i'm down in mexico training lawyers and we i I oversee six projects in mexico so it's become a kind of global movement And along with the global movement of freeing innocent people from prison, we've used what we learned about wrongful convictions to change laws. So, for example, in California, we just recently got changed the procedures, how police do identifications, because the procedures themselves were leading to wrongful convictions and bad identifications, we learned, uh, was one of the leading causes of wrongful conviction. I spend a chapter in my book uh, talking about it, and uh, the chapter is called You Look Like Other People in the World, because (laughs) it is that simple to be wrongfully convicted if you're misidentified. Now, you point out that this is a uh, there are 71 organizations around the world. So this is a global problem. How uh, and. You have founded innocence organizations throughout Latin America. How does the situation in this country compare with other nations around the world? Well, you know, I I always say the U.S. doesn't have the best criminal justice system, but it also doesn't have the worst. So uh, I work a lot in Europe, and we look at the Northern European model. It's far superior to the U.S. model, which has gotten very caught up in punishment and over-sentencing and You know, we're really a culture of fear where politicians use the criminal law to get elected by promising heavier sentences. And that's why now we have the largest prison system in the world. Um, We also incarcerate the highest percentage of our population in the world, which is absolutely crazy when you think about the connections between poverty and crime, that the richest country in the world locks up the largest percentage of its population. So um, there's a lot of things we could do better. But, you know, I, I work all over Latin America. and There's certainly some profound problems down here uh, in Mexico. There's there's a lot of corruption. Mexico actually just started doing trials for the first time in 400 years. Hmm. So I spend a lot of my time down here just teaching lawyers how to cross-examine police officers and how to cross-examine police reports because it hasn't been part of their system. I've spent some time in Mexico and uh, it's my sense that it really is like four or five different countries altogether. In fact, in some cases, uh, I think the people even speak different languages when they're not speaking Spanish. So is there a certain amount of suspicion if you're from the south as opposed to if you're from the north? 
Oh, yeah. Every state and is does that apply in the United States in as Mexico? well? Sorry. I think it is more. I'm sorry. Uh, I, I think. I think it is more dramatic in parts of Mexico, for instance, in Chiapas, mm -hmm. um, in the south of Mexico, they speak 24, 25 different languages. And so we have an uh, innocence organization there, and it, it's very challenging getting people who just speak the languages to work with the clients. Um, so, yeah, it, it's very dramatic. And then there's sort of old colonial Mexico, mm -hmm. and then there's sort of tourist Mexico on the beaches. Uh, it's a beautiful country with tremendous resources, but it, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of corruption. There's a lot of problems in the justice system. And I've been working down here for years trying to improve things. I worked in Chile not long after Pinochet, and I actually had the honor of training the first 12 public defenders there. And we've seen tremendous improvements um, in Chile over the last couple of decades. Is corruption a problem in this country? Corruption is a problem in every country. Uh, you know, I always say, uh, you know, every job, there's a bell curve, right? There's this s small amount of people who are extraordinary at their job. There's most of us that fall in the good to okay category. And then there's the corrupt and the awful. And, uh, you know, every country has that problem. Every country has corruption going on in police forces, with judges, with prosecutors, with defense attorneys. But actually... And if you'd asked me that question 30 years ago when I was a new lawyer, I was, you know, would have had an answer like, yes, they're trying to set my clients up. They're out there doing all these bad things. But what I've really found in my career, it's, it's more people try to get up every day and do the best they can. But there's just a lot of incompetence. There's a lot of just people not knowing what they're doing or people wanting to get home and watch Survivor on TV so they don't stay in their office and file enough motions or, you know, so there's laziness and competence. It's more, it's less malicious. And of course there are those cases of maliciousness, but they're more rare. What's very common is incompetence. Well, wouldn't uh, a judge who has certain political beliefs and applies them to uh, an accused person be accused of maliciousness? Because we're seeing a lot of that in this country. Well, yes. And I think it's very odd in this country that we elect judges. So judges become politicians. And most judges come through the track in the criminal world of, of being prosecutors. So there's already a bias mm -hmm. towards that. In fact, in your opening, you said uh, in, in the United States, do we have the presumption of innocence? Well, when I train my students, I say, don't walk into a courtroom and think you're ahead because the prosecution has to prove their case. You are the person standing next to the person in the shackles and the orange jumpsuit. And the other side, there's going to be a prosecutor and police officers. You are down two touchdowns with two minutes to go. Uh, it is it is all the odds are against you in the criminal justice system because there's just strong bias towards convicting. You say any of us might be swept up in the system. That's the whole point of my new book. Mm. So it's called You Might Go to Prison Even Though You're Innocent. It's available now on Amazon. It'll be in bookstores next week. And uh, it's the whole idea of it was that when I started this work 30 years ago, people would argue with me about whether there were any innocent people in prison. And back then, you know, we argued about cases like Reuben Hurricane Carter and some different cases. But DNA changed all that. DNA, we found definitive cases of innocence, hundreds of them. And now we have thousands of them. So now it's more about people's personal denial about whether that would happen to them or happen to a family member. And the point of the book is in the 10 chapters is I go through all the ways you can be wrongfully convicted that can happen to anyone, that you can be misidentified, that you can have bad science introduced against you at trial, that you can end up giving a false confession, even though many people believe an innocent person will never confess. We now know that 17% of innocent people who've been exonerated by DNA confessed. Because they've been coerced? Proven to be innocent. Because they've been coerced or because they just are, feel guilty? 
So, I mean, obviously, there's also guilty people that confess. I mean, I, I don't deny that. I, I always say there's there's two naive positions. One is that everyone in prison is guilty. The other is that everyone in prison is innocent. Uh, both of those are naive positions. I think most people in prison are guilty. And then the question is, how many fell through the cracks and how big are those cracks? And what often happens in interrogations is that after hours and hours of being questioned, and the police, by the way, don't use tactics to find the truth, which is uh, what a lot of people think. They think they're trained to find the truth. They're not. They're trained on a thing called the read technique. And the read technique is focused on getting the other person to agree with your narrative. So you go into the interrogation with a narrative, and now you're getting that other person to agree. Now, in some cases, people just get deeply confused Maybe they have borderline IQs. Maybe they're very young. Lots of times they're extremely traumatized because they've just been through, let's say, a murder that's happened in their vicinity or to a family member. And when they're kept up all night, they start often getting confused. They start getting mixed up. Um, in some cases, people had blackouts and didn't know exactly what happened. But now they're convinced about what happened. And in some cases, what I think is most interesting, which I think when I talk to people about this, this starts to get them to accept the idea that they might confess, is that after hours and hours, sometimes you just get irritated and you say like, okay, whatever, you got me. And then they sign the paper thinking, I'm not going to get convicted because I didn't do this. Well, now maybe the police get a bad identification. Maybe they get a snitch in the prison to testify against you and you go to prison for the rest of your life. But what, what we definitively know is that innocent people do confess. And one law we just got passed in California is that uh, the police can no longer lie to juveniles in interrogation situations. And New York actually has a famous case, this case, Marty Tankloff. And Marty was this high school kid whose parents were brutally murdered um, in their home. And the police started focusing on Marty and interrogated him over a long period of time and actually had a fake phone call come in where they pretended that his father was calling to tell the police that Marty was the one who attacked him. Hmm. And he got so disturbed and confused that he started thinking, well, my father wouldn't lie about that. Maybe I was sleepwalking. Maybe I blanked out. And he confesses. And he went to prison for a very long time, was ultimately exonerated, and they found the real guys who did it. And, and now Marty is a lawyer hmm. uh, there in New York City. So it can happen to anybody, and we need to have better procedures to decrease the number of times it happens. One example you give is the case of the football player, Brian Banks. What happened there, and how was he eventually exonerated? So Brian was one of the best high school football players in the country. He was on his way to USC on a full scholarship. Everybody said he was going to the NFL. And then one day, this 15 year old classmate brian was only 16 years old said that brian raped her and based on that accusation brian ends up in a juvenile detention facility for a year all his football dreams just fall apart and, and he gets to court and on the day of trial his lawyer tells him look it's an all-white jury out there you're a big black teenager it's going to be your word against hers but i got a great deal for you if you take this deal and you plead no contest, I think I might get you probation. Hmm. If you don't take this deal and get convicted, you're looking at 44 years to life. You're going to die in prison. And then Brian's crying. He's just a kid. And he says, can I talk to my parents? They're right outside. And she says, no, you need to make this decision right now. So Brian ends up pleading. The judge doesn't give him probation, sends him to prison for six years. Hmm. And he then later on gets out and the woman comes forward and said that she made it up and that it never happened. And Brian was ultimately exonerated. Uh, he ended up playing in the NFL for the Atlanta Falcons. Uh, there's a, a movie on Hulu right now called in Brian fact, Banks about it. And, and you're, played, you're played by Greg Kinnear in that movie, aren't I you? did have the bizarre life experience of being played by Greg Kinnear, <laughs> yes, which was, was quite an honor. Um, but yeah, it just, I, I use it as an example in the book for two things. Number one, that a simple lie can put you in prison and that can happen to anyone. A simple accusation that's false. And the other issue I wanted to get wait, into. Wait, wait, can I stop you just one second? 
what happens to the sure. woman who's accused him? Does she just get off? Okay, so I made it up. I said he raped me and he didn't. Does she get punished for causing so, all that trouble? So, yeah, so to to rub salt in the wounds, while Brian was in prison, her mother sued the school district, and they actually got a million and a half dollars because they claimed she was raped at school and the school wasn't safe enough. And so when it came out that her whole, all her testimony was false, the county of Los Angeles went after her for that money plus interest. They also went after her for lying, but she disappeared. Um, and, and, and by the way, that's extremely rare that they ever even do anything about false testimony by witnesses. Uh, often the prosecution will put on false testimony and nothing happens later on, even when it's proven to be false. So there's very little deterrence against people just lying in court, and it happens every day. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org is Justin Brooks. His latest book is You Might Go to Prison Even Though You're Innocent. Uh, it is published by University of California Press. This is a book aimed at the general public. Your previous book was was, was aimed at people in the in the field. Yes, yeah, so I wrote a textbook on wrongful convictions uh, to assist professors in teaching the subject. It's a very academic book. This book I wanted to write at, that could be read at the beach that anybody can understand, and, and I just break down into simple terms. Here's how it happens. Here's how innocent people end up in the system. And, uh, you know, I get into all the bad sciences, like my clients who've been convicted on bite mark evidence, mm. which is basically just bored dentists who watch too much CSI. Uh, there's just a lot of bad junk out there that leads people to prison who are innocent. One of your chapters is headed, you have or care for a sick child. How does that apply? So in medical school, uh, med students are trained that when they see three very particular symptoms, it's always a case of abuse. And it's when they see retinal hemorrhaging, when they see bleeding on the brain, and when they see swelling of the brain. And that's led to this thing called shaken baby syndrome, which many people have heard about. Mm -hmm. And there's been many people across the country prosecuted for this. Caregivers, parents. And now we know that sometimes those are cases of abuse, but sometimes there's other causes that can cause those three symptoms. Things like meningitis, things like vitamin deficiency. And even just from a regular vaginal delivery, you can have those symptoms. And what typically happens is if a baby is born and they have those symptoms, you wouldn't notice them because if a baby is healthy, you don't do a CT scan, you don't do an X-ray, so you don't find swelling of the brain, you don't find retinal hemorrhaging. And typically, the baby goes home and all those symptoms go away and they go on to lead a good life. In fact, both you and I might have suffered that at birth and never knew about it. But let's say now the baby falls off the changing table, hits their head and dies. Mm. Well, now they bring the baby back to the hospital, now they do a CT scan, now they do an X-ray, and they'll come up with saying it's an abuse case based on those injuries that actually happened at birth but weren't diagnosed. So I have had several of these cases. I have walked three people out of prison who were wrongfully convicted of killing children. And, of course, there is abuse out there. And, of course, children do die at the hands of abuse. But we need to get better at separating out innocent people from guilty people. And, and these are, the, by the way, the absolute worst cases because first of all, imagine your child dies and then imagine you go on trial for your child's death and they look at you as a murderer and everyone in the community starts thinking you murdered your child. It's bad enough and then that, you baby, that your resource. child died and now you're accused of having been responsible. Yeah, and then the follow-up to that is after you've spent every penny you have trying to defend yourself, you now go to prison as a baby killer, hmm. which is the absolute lowest level in prison hierarchy. And a lot of times the people caught up in this are just regular middle-class Americans who have no chance of surviving in prison. And so the only thing they can do, a lot of them, is get locked down in protective custody. So I had a client, Ken Marsh, who was wrongfully convicted of killing his girlfriend's baby. 
And he was just this middle-class guy. So he spent 20 years basically in solitary confinement. And by the time I got him out, he couldn't even cross a road without me holding his hand. He was so just psychologically damaged by that experience. And, and by the way, the United States, as well as having the largest prison system in the world, we lead the world in the use of solitary confinement as a use of punishment. And so we create all kinds of psychological injury to people we incarcerate, and then we let them out into society and wonder why they end up back in prison within a couple of years. We, we make a lot of mistakes in our system. We don't have any way of helping these people readjust to the world, especially if we found out that they had been unjustly imprisoned in the first place? Well, we try to help them as much as we can in our, our project, um, but the damage has been done, first of all. And second, actually, it's interesting that in California, when I first moved out there and started the California Innocence Project, my clients didn't even get the same benefits of parolees when they were released. So parolees get a certain amount of cash. They get they stay in a halfway house. Uh, they get assistance in getting jobs. Since I kind of throw a wrench in the middle of the system and just pull my clients out, they weren't eligible for those benefits. So we had to actually get a law passed in California that when innocent people are freed from prison, they get the same benefits as guilty people who are freed from prison. And that's just Kafkaesque. I mean, it's just another surreal aspect of our criminal justice system. And we don't do anything to help them adjust. No. And in fact, our whole system is set up against that. Like, for example, when we build prisons, we build them out in the middle of nowhere. We build them in rural areas where land is cheap. And so in California, the majority of the prison population comes from Los Angeles. And yet the prisons are hundreds of miles away. Most of the people are poor. Their family members can't afford to, to get a car. They can't drive out to the prisons. They can't stay in a motel overnight to then get up at five in the morning and line up at the prison gate. So we actually, you know, separate people from their families. We make them less functional. We don't give them good job training skills. We don't give them education. And they come out. And they're disconnected from their previous lives, and they have fewer skills. And now the one additional thing they have is a felony conviction. Hmm. And so it, it's not a process to make people better in functioning in society. It's more a process to make them dysfunctional in society. Now, we mentioned that some of the common factors leading to wrongful convictions are hiring a bad lawyer, bearing a resemblance to someone else, Um and I, I wondered about whether the judge plays a role. Um, you have a number of, of chapter headings that kind of indicate what we're talking about. Um, you're in a relationship and live with someone who's murdered. You kind of look like other people in the world. You get confused when you are tired and hungry and people yell at you. You got a jury that was blinded by science, in quotes. You work with children or let them in your house. Someone lies about you, and you are poor or a person of color. Let's uh, talk about some of the, those things. How often is race a factor? So the, the, the last chapter of the book, and as you just listed what I have as the top ten, and reasons you'll be wrongfully convicted. And, and, the final and, we, and by the way, you can you go into explain any of those in more detail, please. Sure. Well, I'll start with the first one, and then I'll talk about race a little bit, because the first one is what started my journey in this work, where it is you hired the wrong lawyer. And uh, 27 years ago, I read in the newspaper about a woman on death row in Illinois who had been sentenced to death on a plea bargain. Her name is Marilyn Malero. I thought, how is Marilyn Malero? And I said, how could someone be sentenced to death on a plea bargain? So I actually set up a meeting with her, went out and met her on death row. At the time, I was teaching law school in Michigan. And she said, yeah, my lawyer told me this is what I should do. I should plead out. And I said, plead out with no deal and get the death penalty? Yeah. And she said, and I'm innocent. So I said, you're innocent? But you pled and you got the death penalty? Yes. So I recruited some of my law students to work on the case with me, and we found out that she was, in fact, factually innocent. But what happened in her case was 
She'd been assigned a really great public defender, a woman who had done hundreds of trials. And she, like many people, think that public defenders aren't real lawyers and that they're not good lawyers. So she fires an excellent lawyer and then hires a guy in the neighborhood, gives him a $10,000 retainer. He's never handled anything remotely like this case. And he just goes in and pleads her out and gets the death penalty. So, you know, you hired the wrong lawyer is definitely a cause of wrongful conviction. And I've seen a lot of incompetence over the years in lawyers. You know, their clients say they're innocent and the lawyers either don't believe it or just don't want to take the time to check it out or don't develop the alibi well enough and people get wrongfully convicted. So that's the, the first chapter of my book. And then the final chapter that you referred to about race and poverty that was actually the hardest chapter to write. And I probably sp I spent more time on that chapter than any other chapter. And the reason is this. With every other cause of wrongful conviction you just talked about, bad identifications, bad confessions, bad science, I can walk into court and say, judge, here's why my client was convicted based on this bad evidence, and here's new evidence showing that it's incorrect. But with race and poverty, it sort of permeates the entire system but it's hard to directly point at as a cause of wrongful conviction. But when you take a 30,000 foot view of it and you look at the statistics, it is crystal clear that people of color and poor people are getting wrongfully convicted at a much higher rate than white people uh, in the United States. And it's Latinos because, as well. You know, when we go to court. Latinos and Asians as everybody, well. Everybody, uh, Latinos, Asians, all people of color. Now, one reason is because cross-racial identifications is a leading cause of wrongful convictions. And I've had many cases where white witnesses misidentify people of color because they're just not good at making those kinds of identifications. They all look alike. And that has to do with, yeah, and that's a, you know, that's a saying, but there's truth in it in that in your first four years of life as a baby, you develop your facial recognition software and if everyone around you is white, your mom, your dad, your brothers, your sisters, while you're developing your ability to distinguish faces, you're not getting a diverse look at different faces. And so then you will not be good at it the rest of your life. And that's a fact. Um, so there's that reason. But there's also all the biases that come into a courtroom. And anyone who thinks the criminal justice system isn't racist must believe that society at whole isn't racist. But the truth is, every juror that walks into that building, every judge, every prosecutor, every defense attorney, every defendant brings their life experience with them. And when people look like you or look like your mom or your dad or your brothers or your sisters, it's human nature to have more empathy for that person. It's human nature to find that person more believable. And then we have all the influences of the media for example, in the, it, there's come to be this thing known as white woman syndrome, which is whenever a white woman disappears, it's a major news story. And then when they find them dead, the prosecution steps into that media spotlight and says, OK, and now I'm going for the death penalty. And there's all this pressure that's very different than uh, when victims are people of color. It's just fundamentally different. And I think anyone who actually pays attention to the news can't deny that. Uh, when I lived in D.C., I practiced during the uh, you know late 80s, early 90s, and every day a young black kid was killed in southeast D.C. And every day the Washington Post, a very progressive paper, would have it in the metro section. And when a white person got killed, it would be on the front page, be in the front section mm -hmm. of the paper. And people would say, well, that's news. Well, you know, you can say that it's more news, one human being dying over another one. But the influence that has on the system is profound because now you care more about that death. That death becomes more of a focus and we end up having this impact, this disparate racial impact in the criminal legal system. Have things improved at all in recent years because there are more people of color in our police forces and judicial systems and there are obvious attempts to integrate juries? Yes. Things have improved. I mean, if you take a long view, things have certainly improved. Uh, you know, even though we had the right to counsel in the Constitution, it wasn't really until the 1960s that we started giving people lawyers. And, uh, you know, in the 
1990s where we started setting standards for the quality of lawyers. And in the last 20 years, we've seen a lot of wrongful convictions reversed based on those standards. Uh, we've certainly seen improvements. I, I often think we take two steps forward and one step back. Um, but if you can take a long view of the system, we've improved it. Uh, one of our missions at the California Innocence Project and at the innocence organizations around the world is to improve the system. So, you know, today I'm here in Mexico training lawyers. And next week I'll be in California training lawyers. And, you know, we, we a lot of training has happened. A lot of legislation has passed. But there's a lot of work to do. Uh, we will never get it 100% right. But we can do a lot better than we're doing. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Justin Brooks. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, You Might Go to Prison Even Though You're Innocent. To do that, just go online to give2wbai.org. That's give and the number 2wbai.org or call 212 212- Two zero nine two nine five zero during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. But don't forget to make that fifty dollar donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And we also in, encourage you to become BAI buddies uh, during fundraisers. Uh, right now, this is the last day of Women's History Month. And if you become a BAI buddy for $15 or more and make a $100 contribution to WBAI, you can receive the Women's History Collection as I give to you. This is your last opportunity to do it during this show, during this month. Uh, this is We're talking about a great 79-hour collection of restored audio recordings dating back to the earliest days of community radio broadcasting in 1949 that have been culled from over six seasons of weekly radio programs from BAI and our sister stations in the Pacifica Radio Network. To get that, just ask for the Women's History Collection when you call us at 212-209-2950, or in this case, go online to women.wbai.org to become a BAI buddy with Lopate at Large as your favorite show. And we return now to Justin Brooks, whose latest book is You Might Go to Prison Even Though You're Innocent, published by University of California Press. He's been recognized as one of the top 100 lawyers in California. And in 2010 and 2012, California Lawyer Magazine honored him with the Lawyer of the Year Award. Um, he is the author of the only legal casebook devoted to the topic of wrongful convictions, and now he's written this book for the general public. Um, you've said that you think it's human nature to not believe in wrongful convictions because then you have to believe that one day you might be wrongfully convicted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, I, and I'll tell you something interesting with that. I've been doing this work so long that I've had to come to the conclusion I might be wrongfully convicted. So I literally have a plan for my first day in prison. And if I ever was wrongfully convicted, and that is I, I'll go out on the yard and I will go up to all the gang leaders, just get them all together and say, OK, guys, I will be your lawyer and your lawyer and your lawyer and your lawyer. I will spend every day in the law library if you keep everybody else here away from me. So it's it's a reality I have to face up to. But I think, of course, it's human nature to not want to think horrible things are going to happen to you. I mean. We're all floating around on this giant rock through this great void, and we don't think about that all day long. We just, you know, go through our day and go to our jobs and live our lives. Uh, and so we push to the side all kinds of horrible thoughts. And this is a horrible thought that, that you could end up in prison one day for something you didn't do. So don't most people come to understand this topic only after they or someone they know winds up in prison despite being innocent? Exactly. And that's why I wrote this book. Because if it doesn't happen to you or a family member or a friend, you don't spend the time digging into it and understanding how it could happen. 
And, you know, I've, I've been around those family members for the past three decades and friends and the anguish that they have and the, the shock that how did this happen? This couldn't have happened. I live in the United States of America. This is stuff that happens in other countries, not here. Um, you know, my client, Kim Long, she comes home and she finds her boyfriend beaten to death. Hmm. And one of the chapters in my book is, uh, you know, someone you're in a relationship with is murdered. And if that happens, and I've had two separate clients that I've walked out of prison who came home and one Kim found her murdered boyfriend. Uh, my client, William Richards, found his murdered wife. And you're going to be a suspect because, first of all, the majority of murders are domestic. So police are always looking at the partners. And then if you found the body, they can put you on the crime scene. You're probably not going to have a good alibi unless time of death analysis is done really well. And then they can almost always find a motive. Now, in Kim's case, she had the unfortunate circumstance that she got an argument with her boyfriend earlier in the day. And there were witnesses to that argument. But even when something like that doesn't happen, I've seen cases where some friend comes forward and you know wants to be in the drama and says, oh, yeah, there was tension in their relationship. Well, I mean, you know, tension in a lot of most relationships at one point or another. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, when most when marriages are all ending in divorce, it's mm -hmm. like you can pretty much point to any marriage and say, OK, I'm going to find something here. So it's that easy. Uh, a murder happens. And if, and if they don't find that suspect very quickly and they don't have leads on someone else, they're going to be looking at you and they're going to be building that case against you. And you're going to find yourself in an interrogation. And hopefully you, you won't say anything stupid and hopefully you can walk away from it. But I've, mm -hmm. I've seen people caught up in it and spend decades in prison. You've worked on the cases of three dozen innocent people over the past 32 years. Were, were you sure that they were all innocent from the start? So, and and no. did and did people uh, come to you who actually had committed the crime but knew that you had a reputation for getting people off? So, I think my reputation isn't for getting people off. My reputation is more for taking up on only cases where there's strong evidence of innocence. You know, California had, had until recently the largest prison system in the United States. Texas has now overtaken us, which I'm proud of. Uh, but I received thousands thousands of letters a year. And I have a huge team of law students. And I've got 10 lawyers who work for me, and 100 volunteer lawyers. And we go through every one of those cases. And twice a week, we have presentations on cases. And I have the awful Caesar like power of thumbs up or thumbs down, hmm. whether we pursue that case. And most of the time, my thumb is down. Because I think either number one, they're not innocent, or number two, I just think even if they are innocent, we'll never prove it. Um, for instance, drug cases are fundamentally impossible to prove uh, after conviction because there's only two elements to a drug case. You had drugs and you knew you had drugs. And even though I look at a lot of cases where they may have been innocent because the way our possession laws work is you could be at a party and somebody has cocaine at that party and you don't even know they have cocaine, but everyone in the room could be charged with possession. Or somebody gives you a ride home in their car and they have cocaine in the car, police pull you over, you're all charged with possession. So if the jury didn't believe that you didn't know it or you weren't in control of it, I can't unring that bell. So there's huge classes of cases where it's just impossible to win. Most of the cases of exonerations, when you look at them, they're rape cases, they're murder cases, they're cases where we can use science to prove definitively the person's innocence. So each year we look through thousands of cases. We take maybe 100 into serious investigation. We take maybe 6 to 10 into serious litigation. And if I have a good year, I walk two or three people out of prison. So it literally goes from thousands, you know, 3,000 to three can be a year uh, in terms of people getting out. And it's, that's the hardest part of the job because I know a lot of those people are innocent that I say no to. But I also know from my experience, it's too late, that, that we're the last stop. And there's nothing I can do at that point. When they've lost their trial, lost their appeals, and now a habeas petition, there's, it can only be filed if there's new evidence. 
and it's impossible to develop new evidence that can prove their innocence. So we should assume that there are a fair number of people in our prisons right now who did not commit the crime but uh, have lost all their possibilities of of, uh, proving their innocence? Well, let me give you a statistic that I think is quite chilling. We have walked 4% of the people sentenced to death in the United States. We've walked them off death row after proving they're innocent. And when I say we, myself, all the innocence organizations around the country, all the defense attorneys who do this work. So if we had a rate of 4% that we walked off death row, and then you got to think those are the lucky ones, because those are the ones where there was evidence around that could prove their innocence, that they got a lawyer to take their case on, that they got a judge to take time out of his their schedule to consider that evidence. And then that judge did a very brave political thing, which often cost them support from the correctional officers union, the police officers union, the prosecutors um, to reverse that conviction. And so, you know, if it's 4% on death row, and those are the most serious cases that get the most scrutiny, that get the most media attention, if we're making a mistake at a 4% rate, and that's, again, considering just the ones we definitively know about, how many mistakes are being made in simple drug cases, in simple assault cases, in cases that get very little attention? And particularly when we know, and I just heard this new number, that we're now approaching 98% of cases being pled out. And those are just deals that are being made where people are trying to make the best deal possible to get out of a hard situation who very well might be innocent. People like Brian Banks, who was looking at, maybe I get probation if I take this deal, but if I go to trial, I'm going to die in prison. So it's, it's, you know, it's not like when I stuck, came out of law school where the sentences were much lower. And when I get an offer, it was like, well, if I go to trial, my guy's going to get 12 years. I take this deal. They're going to get six to eight. Hmm. Now it's like massive sentences that you're staring down. And so people take deals who are innocent. So and those cases are almost impossible to win later on once you've pled out. So the number, I don't know what the number is of how many innocent people are in prison. I get asked it all the time. Anyone who gives you a number, it's, it's just extrapolating from other figures. But I do know we've walked 4% of people off death row, and that's a shocking number. I'm assuming that there are a fair number of people who have committed crimes in the past who have not committed this crime, but because they already have a record, they're much more likely to be convicted. Sure, that's where the focus is going to go. In fact, I'll give you a ridiculous example of that, which was my first exoneration in California. My client worked at an office depot, and the office depot got robbed by a guy in a mask. And when the police came to check it out, they figured, oh, it must be an inside job because the robber knew who the manager was. Hmm. Well, next time you're at Office Depot, see if you can figure that out. That's the guy in the red vest. Everyone else has blue vests on. But still, this officer thought, okay, must be an inside job, runs a background check. The only person in the store who had a criminal record is my client who had a drug conviction. So then this officer walked around the store and actually said to the employees, did the robber sound like Jason? And one says, oh, yeah, it did sound like Jason. And he got convicted based on a voice identification. And then years later, we were able to come in actually in front of Judge Ito, uh, right at, not long after the O.J. Simpson trial. He was the O.J. Simpson uh, judge. Uh, we were able to bring in evidence of the height of the guy who did the robbery by taking the height of the door. And there was a video of the robber walking through with a mask on. And we were able to calculate his height using the height of the door. And the robber was six inches taller uh, than my client. Now, if we didn't have that video and the capacity to do that assessment, he would have spent 25 years in prison. Uh, And it was just based on, again, the bias of who's got a criminal record. They're probably the one who did this. And so, yes, I have had clients that have had prior priors that lead the police to them. But I've also had a whole lot of clients who've never had anything to do with the criminal justice system, who by circumstance become the suspect. And why are the alibis of innocent people sometimes suspect? Well, that's an interesting thing I talked about in the last chapter of my book, too, is that you know poor people in the United States don't often travel very far from their neighborhoods, right? I mean, 
I'm down in Mexico today training lawyers. I, you know, I travel all over the place. Um, people who are well to do in the United States move around more. But when you're poor and live in a neighborhood, you're often not far from these crime scenes. And so it is very difficult to establish firm alibis. Um, but I, I could tell you another case of a wrongful conviction with the best alibi I've ever seen. My client, Raphael Madrigal, was working on the line in a factory when a shooting happened 30 miles away. Hmm. He got convicted based on no evidence at all except for a white woman, and he's Latino, identified his photo, a photo taken when he was a teenager, and he was almost 30 when the crime happened. And with no other evidence, he gets convicted and goes to prison. Fortunately, when we came along, and his lawyer never checked the alibi out, we found out from the owner of the factory that if Raphael wasn't at work at that exact moment, the entire line would have shut down because he's the only one who knew how to use this laminating equipment in the <laughs> middle of the assembly line. And we found a jail phone call of a guy calling his girlfriend saying, I don't know who this guy Raphael is, but he got convicted for that shooting I did. <laughs> uh, so we actually found the shooter and solved the crime and proved up his alibi, but not before he spent nine years in prison. Boy, that's and a long that time. is not uncommon. Now we yeah, have and alibis are very. Th think yourself today: how many times you can definitively prove where you are? Yeah. Now, right now, you can while you're talking to me, and this is probably an excellent recording of exactly where you are. But a lot of times, it's not that easy. We have very little time left, but I did want to end by asking if I were charged with a crime that I haven't committed, how should I proceed other than, uh, in my case, calling you? <laughs> yes. Well, the first thing is do not participate in an interrogation. There is no value to that. The police can lie to you. Uh, they cannot make promises that they can keep. It's up to the prosecutors to decide if you get prosecutors. So any deal they make is not relevant. And I understand people's nature to want to clear things up with the police. And, and you know, if you're just asked some casual question in some situation, I'm not saying that people, you know, when you get pulled over, refuse to talk to the police. But I am saying if you're in an interrogation situation, you absolutely should not be talking. And then, you know, get the best lawyer you can. And, uh, you know, good luck, because it still can happen to you even with that but at least you'll decrease your chances. My great thanks to you for being on our show today. I've been speaking with Justin Brooks, whose latest book is You Might Go to Prison Even Though You're Innocent. It's published by the University of California Press. Anything you want to add in the, in the last half minute or so? Well, I just I really would love people to read this book, and I really would love them to think about it as they get called to jury duty to answer those summonses. And I would really love people to think about when they go out and vote and people talk about criminal justice policies, do they really improve the system or do they just put Band-Aids on it by locking up more people mm -hmm. and having a short-term gain that does nothing to really improve our system and ultimately improve our society? Thank you again for being on our show. My pleasure. And that brings us to the end of this show. My great thanks to today's audio engineer, Catherine Davis, and to our executive producer, Keziah Glow, and our audio engineer, Reggie Johnson, for all the invaluable work that they do throughout the week. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 800 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. You can find our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you want to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. Uh, we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's give and the number 2, WBAI. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content information you usually don't get anywhere else. Um, and WBAI itself is going through a really rough time right now. 
affected by the pandemic and other factors, we really are struggling to keep our heads above water. Uh, so please give us that call. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Linda located Large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing. You might go to prison even though you're innocent by Justin Brooks. So why not make that call right now, 212-209-2950. Go online to give to WBAI.org. And we also hope that you'll consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, uh, for $10, $15, $20, $25 a month. Uh, as long as you feel comfortable doing that, it allows us to plan for the future. And we'll say thank you if you do that by sending you a WBAI tote bag. And then there's another matter. Today's the last day that if you become a BAI buddy for $15 or more and make a $100 contribution to WBAI, you can receive the Women's History Collection as I give to you. It's a, it's a great 79-hour collection of restored audio recordings that date back to the earliest days of community radio broadcasting. Uh, that's 1949, and they've been culled from over six seasons of weekly radio programs from WBAI and our sister stations in the Pacifica Radio Network. Ask for the Women's History Collection when you call us at 212-209-2950, or in this case, go online to women.wbai.org and become a BAI buddy with Lopate at Large as your favorite show. And I hope you'll do that right now because BAI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. So if you tune in regularly to Lend Located Large, show us your appreciation. Call 212-209-2950. Go online to give to WBAI.org. And after all, we are the only station, the New York Radio Dial, that's 100% listener-sponsored. Keep us alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support, okay? We are off on Monday, but I hope you can join us again on Tuesday at this time when our guest will be Dan Egan discussing his new book, The Devil's Element, Phosphorus and a World Out of Balance. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next week.